Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Trail Culture. I'm your host, Em Robertson, and I'm so stoked that you're tuning in. Today, we've got Simon Duvall back on the podcast for our second episode of our Trail Science series. We hope that you guys have been enjoying these episodes as much as we have. And today, we're going to be tackling the question of, is ultra running good for you? We'll be having a look at what research has to say about this, looking at some of the physiological effects of ultra training and racing. And with our next episode, we're going to be taking a dive into the sports psychology of ultra running and the benefits of that for athletes. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. Welcome back, everyone. We are back at it again with a trail science episode. We once again have Simon Duvall from Rooted in Dirt on the podcast um, with us today for episode two of this series. So today or this evening, we're going to be looking at a pretty big question, which is, is ultra marathon running good for you? Um, we'll be taking a look at what research has to say about the health effects of ultra marathon slash marathon running. Um, is it good for you? What are the negative effects? What are the things to consider? And how athletes can make informed decisions before they jump into the, the ultra uh, distances. So we hope you guys enjoy the episode. We are pretty stoked about it. And yeah, I've got bucket loads of research in front of me and have done quite a lot of reading as I'm sure Simon has. So yeah, welcome back, Simon. Thanks very much, Emily. Nice to be back on the podcast. And it is the, the age old question of ultra running which i'm really looking forward to to tackling with you so hopefully your your audience finds the discussion interesting yeah no i'm sure i'm sure we will um yeah i think this one i was like should i tell people that ultra marathon running is not good for them because i feel like i won't have a job if i find you <laughs> um is yes but we, we're posing the question we're not we're not telling people what they should or shouldn't do right yes no <laughs> that that is true yeah guys uh also all the research or we'll make the research that we can make available in the show notes um so you guys can also draw some of your own conclusions but this is going to be a fun a fun chat um but before we get started we always start way at the beginning um usually with definitions uh I was always told when you say speech, you shouldn't define a word at the start. I think you told me that before I did my master's, but that's kind of what we do. So what is ultra marathon running, Simon, before we look at the pros and cons? Yeah, so um, I suppose we're, gonna, we're talking about ultra marathon running, not specifically trail running today. Of course, um, trail running, very commonplace to have ultra length trail runs or ultra trail marathons as well but we we're going to be focusing specifically on ultra marathon running which by the textbook definition is anything greater than marathon distance so 42.2 k's roughly um i've seen some some people define it slightly different by time on feet uh, the length of time spent uh, doing the race so some people say anything greater than four to six hours now show me how many people can finish an ultra in four hours. Um, not that many. Um, so I think we'll, we'll stick with for our uh, cases, uh, things that are uh, races that are great, greater than marathon length. But typically I think that that kind of starts at 50 kilometers, right? Um, yeah. And obviously you get some super long races. Um, so those of you who recently did UTCT, 100K, 100 mile, 
Um, you get some crazy people who do even longer bouts than that. I'm sure you know a few of those types mm. of things, M. But yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, we're talking about anything greater than marathon distance, essentially. Yeah, including, I think, the stage racing, multi-day, continuous races. There's all those wild things, most of them are in America, uh, where you can just run for like 300 miles. <laughs> so, yes, yes. Even, even that's included. So... We're talking about ultra running and uh, we've given the definition, but uh, the first, we, we were kind of thinking about how we're going to tackle this podcast episode, I suppose. Um, and I thought it might be quite fun to pose a question to the audience, uh, which Emily will will pose to you at the end, but it's not, we haven't come up with this uh, question. It's um, It's a question that was, kind of conceptualized by the the great i'm going to call him the great now martin hoffman uh, martin hoffman if you're listening to this i would love to collaborate with you <laughs> <laughs> on some research um so hoffman and kraus um published a, a paper back in 2018 not too long ago um still considered quite contemporary in the space uh titled ultra obligatory running among ultra marathon runners yes and um, that paper was uh, was a, a really interesting read to me, um, basically because they posed a very simple question to their participants, and we'll talk a little bit more about them uh, shortly. But the question was, if you were to learn with absolute certainty that ultramarathon running is bad for your health, would you stop your ultramarathon training and participation? Question mark. And... Um, the maybe somewhat unsurprisingly uh, the overwhelming majority of the runners so 74 percent of them let's just say 75 percent to to round it up um, answered no in other words they would continue doing ultra marathon running even if they knew that it was bad for them and uh, a measly 25 percent said yes they would stop yeah uh, so that's the first kind of paper that we're going to tackle i suppose um and we'll talk about whether ultra marathon running is bad for you or not um but i suppose we wanted to start this episode with almost the the quest it's almost <laughs> should we have the rest of this discussion if people are just <laughs> going to do it anyway yeah i i think we chatted earlier and i was like that is the most trail runner response ever it's like oh it's bad for you yes. it's fine <laughs> um yeah that's fine yeah, i'll do it anyway i'll do it anyway and i think we're gonna chat a bit more um about kind of what constitutes bad like in, when we say is it bad for you you know um and a lot of what we're seeing is that the positives outweigh the negatives and we'll talk get into the actual like health issues um now but that is just kind of our broad disclaimer is positives can still outweigh the negatives even if something is yes. bad for you which is super interesting um but it's yes. another it's another mantra is everything in moderation which I, i'm not sure that ultra runners really take seriously but you get the gist of what i'm trying to say is you know you can you can do something and it might not be 100 percent good for you but on the balance of evidences it's going to be a, a net positive um in in your life so um yeah, so they, they kind of prefaced this article by just talking about how popular ultra marathon running has become. Yeah. Um, so so once again, we're not talking trail running specific. We, we are including trail running within this discussion, but we're talking all kinds of ultra marathons. 
And um, they gave a, a, a really interesting stat um, from in 2016 globally, so worldwide, there were approximately 300,000 finishes of ultra marathons. And what's interesting about that is it's twice as many as just five years prior to that. So double the amount of ultra marathon finishes uh, globally in just five years. Um, that's still only 15% of marathon finisher figures globally, but it does show that um, it's a it's a growing sport, and I'm sure that post 2016, over the last six seven years, it's continued to to grow. Yeah. Um, I don't know, Emily, what what your thoughts and I kind of getting into into the space over the last few years, and I know that you come from a family that's very fit and takes their running seriously and and all of that. But my experience growing up was that you, you're not a runner unless you run ultra marathons i don't know if, if that's something that you've ever come across or an uh, attitude that you face yes i live in a house with with one of those with somebody who holds that which it was more you're not a runner until you've done the comrades uh which yeah i mean that's a very famous south african road race where you run from peter maritzburg to durban or the reverse uh depending on what year it is and it yeah i think the endurance sport thing was always big in my family so I don't yeah. even know. Like, yeah, I think my dad jumped straight into with it with the two oceans ultra. So it's kind of all he knew. Um, and even going to university and getting into the sport, I was like, do people not just do the park run? Like, does no one yes. run five Ks? You know, why is it always ten K? What happened to or, the good old park run? Yeah, or like why do we have to go so far? And I mean, I, I'm one of those now, but I think my yeah, my introduction was um, if you're, if you're not doing the fast stuff, don't call yourself a runner or like, a, yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's more like, uh, you know, if someone says, do you run, then you, you, you're supposed to say, no, 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 not really. If you do the park, you're run. supposed to be very humble about it. And you know, no, I, I don't really, run. you know, I can run a 15 minute 5k, but I'm not a runner because yes. I've never, I've never run, um, two oceans or comrades, you know, yeah. which is, which is totally ridiculous. And I think it's, um, that's something that I wanted to to bring through this discussion is is that kind of mindset, yeah. which I think is is really pervasive in South African running culture, and I think it's problematic personally. Um, mm. I don't don't get me wrong; I love my ultra running friends. Um, please don't hate me for for saying this, but <laughs> I think that it's um, it can be toxic at times, um, yeah. and it can it can lead people down a path that might be the eventual kind of eventual destination for a lot of people, but they go down that path way too early. Um, and I've had like so many people through, through my, my role as a, as a lecturer in sports science, and then also with coaching and steady shake out and everything. So many people, young people approaching me talking about, you know, I'm going to enter my first ultra marathon and I'm like, okay have you run like have you done a half marathon yet yes. uh, have you thought about maybe doing that before you enter in, into an ultra race and um that's something that that does concern me um particularly in south africa yeah and we we kind of glorify that um that struggle and that that grits that it takes to to run those kinds of distances um 
but it can also have some some adverse effects on the body. And um, there, there's a, a smart way to go about getting to that point where your body can cope with that stress. Yeah, for sure. And I think the other thing that happens, well, I've seen it in South Africa, even silly shakeouts, say where someone gets into running and then they do maybe it's like the the rate at which they jump distances is crazy. It's like you see them in Jan and they've done their first trail race ever, which is usually the 20K. Then you see them two months later and they've entered for a 40. And then at the end of the year, they're like, oh yeah, I'm I'm training for a 100K. You Like, you know, something like UTCT or Skyrun yeah. and you're like, what? And they're limping around. Yeah. They're barely managing to make, make it through City Shakeout, but it's like all for the sake of of saying that I've run a hundred Ks. Um, yeah. yeah. And yeah. that co- that goes into the, um, so the title of the Hoffman and Krauss article is ultra obligatory. I don't know if I'm saying obligatory, right? It's one no, of those words. I, I have no are. idea how to pronounce it. Um, but ultra obligatory running um, is basically saying that it gets to a point, particularly with ultra marathon runners. So there's been some research on the positive effects of running um, and to, to list a few, relief of tension would be one. Um, people who run typically have improved mood after they run and uh, better self-image. They also tend to have creative episodes during and after running. Um, and then there's been some kind of more niche recent literature that suggested that that mood improvement that you get when you do exercise or when you do running is greater in ultramarathon runners. So ultramarathon runners tend to get a little bit more of a mood improvement. And what that can result in is people becoming obligatory runners, essentially, despite them maybe uh, having a niggle or being injured or some other personal contraindications, like things are going horrendously wrong in their personal life or work or you know all of those kinds of things um they will still go out and run um and it becomes a little bit of a of a crutch almost um if i can use that that word yeah um so the the study that that hoffman and Krauss did was based off of they call it the ultra study yeah which is i i think a Martin Hoffman long-term study, I'm, I'm guessing, yeah. um, which is, uh, it's ultra stands for ultra runners, longitudinal tracking, where they had uh, 3000 runners who had completed at least one ultra marathon in their lifetime. And they asked them that question, you know, if you were to learn with absolute certainty that ultra marathon running is bad for your health, would you stop your ultra marathon training and participation? As I said, of them said no, they would continue. Um, That was out of uh, roughly half of those runners um, completed that that survey. But they also completed some subscale questionnaires on motivation, what motivates them, what drives them, um, what their perceptions of success are. And thirdly, uh, what kind of sensation seekers are there? Yes. Um, and so what they found was that the people who were more likely to stop running, in other words, if they found out that doing ultras was was bad for them and they would stop, um, they were more likely to be people who had children, Interesting. Uh, people who were, were married, <laughs> um, people who were older, um, people who ran less in the prior year uh, preceding the, the upcoming uh, race or, or so sorry proceeding when they answered the question um people who started fewer ultras in the last year and people who had 
been running regularly for longer. So these were typically all the people who are more experienced. Um, they'd probably also achieved a lot of the, the goals that they'd set out. And so they were more likely to, to stop running so that they could, you know, still, still, um, uh, maintain their kind of healthy uh, body state or lifestyle um, into their old age. So what was interesting on the subscales, though, is that these people also scored higher for health orientation as their primary motivator. Yes. So other people, in terms of motivation, the ones who were less likely to give it up were more motivated by personal goal achievement and by psychological coping and life meaning that they got out of running. Yeah. And you see a lot of, a lot of people, <laughs> they, they kind of reference the meaning and the purpose that they get out of running, right? Being yeah. one of those primary drivers for why they do these crazy things. I saw that and I was like, oh, trail runners are so deep, man. Like, <laughs> Yeah, they are. They are deep. Um, I was going to say, you know, it's not just that they're, <laughs> Um, full of nonsense. I was going to use another word there. Um, when you know, when uh, a, a lot of run, uh, ultra marathon runners will report that they have a high kind of health orientation. Yeah. Um, so they're not just full of nonsense when they uh, just equally turn around and tell you, "Yeah, but I'm not going to stop running, even if it's unhealthy." It yeah. probably means like their version of health. You know, what does health mean to that person? Well, health yeah. to them means. Um, mental well-being it means psychological coping it means life meaning rather than the physical yeah. health element yeah and I think the, so per the personal goal achievement was is cool um, because that that rate that's totally different across kind of the range of runners that you've got it's not just goal achievement as in like first second third place it's no yeah personal in fact goals. it was it was the opposite so yeah. it wasn't um it wasn't um, kind of, you know, they found that amongst this group of almost 1,500 runners that it wasn't a, about competition-focused orientation. It was task orientation, essentially. So task orientation type of motivation where the main, the primary motivator was they wanted to master the task. They wanted to master the task of ultra running. Yeah. Um, and, and mastery looks different to all people not everyone wants to wants to win, uh, win races you know um but again going back to um to who these people are uh that completed the survey is they were in their mid-30s to mid-50s so that's i want to highlight this again for the younger uh, audience <laughs> these, these people who had completed at least one ultra marathon who were included in the study were in their mid-30s to 50s they were mostly married men um, they were well educated and they also had low self-reported injury uh, and psychological diagnoses. Um, and they yeah. ran 30 to 80 kilometers per week and most of them recreationally. And that 30 to 80 kilometers per week, when you've been doing it for a number of years, you know, when you're at the age that these people were in, and these are also runners that were typically uh, low on a self-reported injury scale. Those yeah. are all protect protective factors you know, running regularly for a number of years is, is a, is a huge protective factor. Um, when you look at how an ultra marathon might affect your body. Um, so I just think it's important to highlight that before we kind of get further into some of the pathophysiology of, of trail running. Yeah. I think on, on the kind of socio demographic characteristics, Simon, I was shocked to see that the average age of the participants was 36 uh one mm. i was like okay uh and with that most of them had 
I think yeah, seven seven years of running experience prior to running their first ultra. So yeah. so that's we're talking about you've year in year out done marathon distance or less, um, as opposed yeah. to just jumping straight in. And I think um that is something to consider. It's like, are we starting too young? Yeah. And too young is 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 not only age wise, it's training age wise, which you've just you've brought in two two separate factors there. Um, you know, age is chronological i'm 35 years or 36 as you said but then the training ages i've been running for seven running regularly for seven years and you need that blend of of kind of both of those um and i can't tell you how many people i've met who they're running crazy ultras every other weekend and i'm like how long have you been running for and they'll be like oh like i started running two years ago and i'm like i've been running for like 11 years and yeah. i i've kind of you know laughingly on on one of our first podcasts said i've never run an ultra marathon but there's a pretty good reason for that um for for me personally is because i know that my body struggles to handle the uh the distances that it would require in training to be adequately prepared for an ultra marathon race i really struggle to to build volume um in training and um it's great that some people are are able to kind of cope with um, with those higher training loads and all power to them. Um, but I still think that we should be on average, you know, for for the if you look at kind of a, a bell curve, you know, for the for the middle fifty percent of of people, we should be preaching a bit of caution when when it goes to preparing for ultra trail marathons. Yeah. So getting into the pathophysiology and the effect of, of ultramarathon running, um, I think we are going to go into a few things that we feel like are, are relevant. We kind of, yeah, Simon's a bit more versed in this than I am. And there are some interesting stuff. I'm going to talk more about the what I've seen practically or in, in field. Mm. Um, but yeah, Simon, I mean, I know we've said, is ultra running bad for you? What are kind of physiological considerations or things that we're looking at that would be considered bad uh yeah yeah i think it's it's um it's it's challenging because my my short answer to you would be it depends um which is a classic answer <laughs> um and i think that it can be bad for you or rather it's not necessarily good for you uh, certainly in the acute phase. So when I talk about the acute phase, I'm talking immediately prior to cessation of exercise. Um, we we certainly know that the long-term benefits of, of doing any kind of endurance sport are really positive. You've got positive health benefits. Uh, there's a lot of protective um, adaptations in terms of uh, cardiovascular health, uh, risk of um, comorbidities, uh, things like type two diabetes, heart disease, those kinds of um, uh, kind of negative effects. So, I mean, it's a difficult one to answer. There are some acute effects of ultra marathon running that you need to be aware of, um, but it's not all bad news. So please, as, as we kind of get into it, don't sit there thinking, oh my goodness, I'm never going to run an ultra marathon again. Yeah. Um, I think the first thing that 
is common or the, the most common during ultramarathon running is an energy deficit. So uh, we have an energy yeah. deficit because we, we're burning calories or uh, kilojoules and we're not able to replace them at the same rate that we are burning them. So we typically see body fat and skeletal muscle mass loss um, after an ultramarathon because we're not meeting those energy demands. And normally this is because appetite is suppressed during ultramarathon running. You, you, I'm how many runners you'll get reporting back. I struggled with eating. I struggled with yeah. eating. Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't take in enough fuel. Um, and we were just talking about a, a runner who was chatting with me about that after his uh, first hundred K. And, um, you know, that's a very common uh, symptom of ultramarathon running is is uh, body fat and skeletal muscle mass loss. Um, those have obvious impacts on um, how well you can train after a ultramarathon run, uh, race yeah. or how well you might perform if you're planning on doing back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back ultras. We're not all Courtney Darwater. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think the main takeaway from that would be, again, take your time you you are not take your time run slowly running slowly will help you to eat more um take <laughs> your time <laughs> getting to a point where you've got your nutrition strategy waxed for a, a long long race it's yeah. like if you've never if you've never practiced it before and you jump straight into a hundred miler things could go a lot worse than if you'd never practiced it before, but you jumped into a half marathon, for example. Yeah. Does that make sense? Definitely. And I think the, are you able to rep, you know, like what are you doing in your training block and are you, do you have the desire for a realistic replication on race day? So there's so many people who I'm like, get to their week training, don't get to the weekend long runs. And now like if you're doing an ultra you need to regularly be doing yeah, like everything changes after four hours is another thing after six and another barrier after 10 yeah. hours but if you can't be on your feet for three hours let alone eat pace do all the things and then you want to run an ultra marathon yeah. that's going to take you 15 plus hours i mean yeah unless you've got the naughtiest beginner's luck ever it's probably not going to go well um just like yeah the training needs to take place the same with eating um yeah and i mean you can even sh sure there's moments where you've done all the work and something still goes wrong and then you kind of have to unpack and see what happened but for the most part it is just one of those things that what you put in you get out um yeah yeah and and a lot of people come to me and i'm sure they do to you as well in, in a coaching lens now and they say you know i want to run my first ultra and I want to do really well to have like a seriously lofty ambition on how well they want to do. Yeah. But the num the number one predictor for ultramarathon performance is previous ultramarathon performance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really, you know, put, put my PhD on the back burner. It, it's it, the physiology is interesting and everything, but it's ultramarathon running is something completely different. There, there's so many elements that make up the performance. So, you know, having previously completed one is is going to give us a really good prediction of what you can do. And yeah. I think all of the things that we talk about today are related to your experience within uh, that that distance and that time um, and the intensity. So that's just something to to consider: is is energy deficit. Um, the the yeah. other 
not I won't say it's common. Um, it, it can be seen depending on race length and race environment. We can see the incidence, um, or should I say, the prevalence of this occurring up to 40 to 50 percent of finishes, which is really high. Um, but it can be as low as zero to eight percent of finishes of ultramarathon run running uh, or runners, and that is exercise-induced hyponatremia. Um, so this is also known as dilutional hyponatremia. It's essentially where, if if you think about what happens during a um, an ultramarathon, is that typically runners will finish at a lighter weight than when they started. Okay, yeah. so there's the energy deficit side, but there's th a lot of that is because of fluid loss, um, particularly early on in, in a race, we lose a lot of uh, fluid due to sweating. And um, dilutional hyponatremia is basically where, although um, athletes are, are losing mass, body mass through sweating, the ratio of water and so uh, water to sodium increases. So we're drinking loads of water, trying to take in loads of water. So that ratio of water in the body increases compared to uh, sodium. And that's what's known as exercise-induced hyponatremia. It's essentially defined by a fall in the serum, so blood uh, concentration of sodium. Um, and that we can measure again. So this is really important because <laughs> I'm sure you've had a couple of runners come to complain to you about this, M. When you are running an ultramarathon and a doctor comes up to you at a, at a medical aid station, please don't wave them away and make them feel like they are some sort of idiots and you yeah. are, you know, you are special and you are fine and you, you know, it, it's complete nonsense. They are taking measures on you to protect you. Yeah. Um, in, in, in bad cases of hyponatremia, most people think um, dehydration, hyper, H-Y-P-E-R. Most yeah. people think hyponatremia is the, um, the is dangerous the culprit, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And a shout out, shout out to Professor Tablanche, who taught both of us, yes. Emily. I was like, who, what? <laughs> what is the difference between hyper or hyponatremia? Answer for 40 marks, physiology, yeah, yeah. second year. Shout, shout, <laughs> shout out Professor Tablanche. Uh, please don't grate me for my physiology knowledge here. But um, <laughs> uh, she, she once uh, kind of told us that the real killer uh, when you get to the severe cases is not hypernatremia dehydration it's hyponatremia um which can in in severe cases um result in kind of seizures coma yeah. brainstem rupture death yeah. and it does um tim yeah. noakes has done some some good research in this area at the comrades marathon um, yes. so it does happen and the problem with that is that the symptoms of dehydration and hyponatremia can sometimes be quite similar um, so yes. gastrointestinal discomfort, nausea, vomiting, headache, restlessness, swollen hands, feet, lethargy, confusion, those kind, those are all hyponatremia symptoms. Some of those are also dehydration symptoms. Yeah. And so when you when you have incorrect IV treatment, you know, getting fluids um, after a, a race, it can actually exacerbate yeah. those hyponatremia. Um, I think that conditions. was the that it's not clinically 
like perceivable or easy to see i was like that's really intense and i know something like um skyrun for example they've got like a very very strict medic check yes uh, 65k and 100k you come into baloch and you get on a scale and i mean that's also what they're looking for has there been excessive kind of body body, body mass, mass loss. loss yeah between yeah. and and if you think and when they say excessive i can't remember exactly what they classify as dangerous each of the doctors has like guidelines and they are yeah. strict i have never yeah. seen yeah and such, that's good that's yeah. a good thing and and don't please don't you know I, i've i've seen runners who think that they are i don't know you know god's gift to to running and think the rules don't apply to them yeah. the rules do apply to you and they're there for a reason yeah. so so how does this kind of exercise induced hyponatremia occur so there's two mechanisms the one is excessive fluid intake so we we feel thirsty so we take in loads of fluids yeah um even though we're losing um body mass we're still taking in loads of fluid and, and the one kind of piece of advice there again this is from from the literature is that um you shouldn't over drink um you should essentially drink to thirst and and your thirst mechanism is pretty good yeah. at gauging what you need yes you will lose uh body mass you will sweat out um water um, as you go um, and yes there are limits to how far we can run for and for how long we can run um, so you know but don't don't over drink um, and then the second one is that we have impaired urinary water excretion so we pee less <laughs> to so make yeah. it a little bit more crude um, because of persistent antidiuretic uh, hormone ADH secretion during exercise. So we actually yeah. retain water um, when we exercise. Yeah. And um, like I said, this, this particular one, it can happen. It very rarely happens to a degree where you've got clinical symptoms, like you just mentioned, Emily. Um, so I don't want people to like be overly worried about it, um, but it does happen. Um, it, it can be really severe and it's important. And, and again, my, I'm going back to what I really want to hammer home today is if you want to reduce the risk of ever having a hyponatremia event um, is progressively get to that distance where you, where your body knows what is coming and yeah. you know how to prepare and plan for it effectively. And don't just jump into the deep end because yeah. then you could find that, that you get yourself in trouble. Yeah. So giving, giving yourself or your body the chance to know what's coming i think from the musculoskeletal issues that people face this is like such a big one um for me yeah and i'm thinking about brad's strength episode your episode yeah. daniel like so many different ones come to mind and i think with this one it's there is a ultra runners can push through a lot of pain and it's like how much pain is appropriate. I think it's the, yeah. the, the one with this. So musculoskeletal. So we're talking about your, your tendons, joints, muscles, that sort of pain and different to, I've just sent it down a thousand meter descent and my quads are toast. This is like, yeah. there is minor damage. Usually well, not usually that will happen. That's what, causes your your doms your muscle soreness after a race it's just an indication that you've done something and an ultra is yeah. quite something but the more severe musculoskeletal problems or issues can be i mean any sort of injury but 
the most common ones that were mentioned in in these articles were actually Achilles tendinopathy being one of the big ones and then yeah. um, femoral patella syndrome which again like runner's, runner's knee. knee runner's knee yeah yeah huge <laughs> I feel like I read it and my knee started getting sore um, yeah. but and with that with those things it's like those problems are more likely to arise once again if you are outside of it's almost like being outside of your scope of practice outside of your scope of conditioning so yes 100%. did you prepare for what you're busy doing um and again yeah. sometimes something out of nowhere can happen where you pick up you've got a niggle for the first time yeah but i mean any comments on I, that simon I, I, yeah i you're 100 percent right i think um so again, the biggest protective factors, like we can do all the things like, uh, and I do like, I'm in the gym, like I'm saying, like I, I always do this. I'm in the gym now. I've gone to the gym like four <laughs> times in the last month. Um, you know, I'm in the gym and I'm doing my stretches. I'm foam rolling and um, please knees don't give up on me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, this is so prevalent in runners that it's literally called runner's knee patellofemoral pain yeah. is called runner's knee because runners always come into the into the rehab spaces with this issue and and all of these um injuries in ultramarathon runners uh the the most prevalent injuries are repetitive overuse type injuries as you've just said tendinopathies is inflammation of a tendon um you know shin splints general inflammation general pain um even things as severe as kind of stress fractures that have developed over a long period of time is because of that repetitive nature of running um, and running more so than other sports because of the axial loading you've got this the force of gravity bearing down on you step yeah. after step after step um and and yet the the two things that at least in in my view according to to some literature that are the most the best indicators of a protective factor against that are how experienced you are. So more experienced runners typically kind of tend to um, suffer from these injuries less so than less experienced runners. And then how fast or how quickly you take on additional load um yeah. so if you've got a, a sudden increase in training load something that your body's not used to it can it can exacerbate and increase the risk of having that kind of an injury so again the 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 good practice there the best practice there is to gradually progressively load the body so that it's capable of handling um those those future demands um so i really want to hammer that home that i think musculoskeletal issues are the main issue with ultramarathon runners that's 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 going to stop you or prohibit you from from future participation or competition yeah, yeah. um and so the best thing that you can do is to be really smart about that and it, it's taken me personally 10 years to get to a point where i can like the last three days i've been training and it's been hard on my body and i know that like i'm i'm in tune with how my body's feeling and today i made the conscious decision not to train because i was like you know i need a rest yeah. that that took me 10 years to get to that point <laughs> no, <laughs> so, don't, don't be like you know. us <laughs> yeah um and yeah. i think something that's come through so much um from various i mean a lot of coaches have said it a lot of people on this podcast have said it but you're only going to be benefiting from 
what you can recover from. This is training, yes. racing, everything. I mean, even going out in a race, if you make it to race day, that's one thing. And then the accumulation of yeah. all the training plus the race effort. I mean, if two weeks after your race, you still can't eat solid foods and walk, you know, yeah. you well, have to um, ask yourself, is that good for me? Yeah, 100%. Um, and and the, the damage to the musculoskeletal system, yes, it happens during the ultramarathon running, but it actually happens more in training than it does in racing. Yeah. So you, there's more wear and tear on that system during training than there is in racing. The way that the body works is every time there's a, a stimulus, there's an adaptation that occurs. Um, and if you plan that adaptation period appropriately, you then are stronger, faster, more efficient for that, uh, for yeah. that training. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not saying everyone should have a, a running coach, although um, you know, I'll, I'll plug your your uh, coaching M and you know that's. <laughs> but but um, hopefully your coaches and the people that are advising you are are switched on to that and will help you plan that appropriately. I think is yeah. is really important as well. Yeah, and um, I think that's that's another thing. Like with having a coach or an external voice or just support in your corner who knows about this stuff. And if we look at like another one of the kind of um, health or things that affect if you want to look at is this bad for you is if we're looking at this is severe now but organ damage so we kind of yeah. targeted the heart and the digestive tract but you can look at I mean the kidneys and your liver all of those things are also working over time and remember again guys the ultra think six plus hours and six being on the more conservative side yeah. you know um, and if you think of if you take something like a hundred K race, that's going to take good athletes um, kind of 18 plus hours. If you think about yeah. what needs to occur just to keep you going as a human in all of all those organs. So your heart, your digestive tract, this and that, and now add intensity, add stress to that. And yeah. having somebody who, so for example, 90%, so the research, this, I really don't know how to say Hoffman's counterpart's name, Stimful. I'm going to try for that. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so the um, article we we're talking about here is. Um, are, are, are you referring to the Hoffman and Krauss, or are you? So it to is the they Hoffman reference and Krauss reference another article by by Hoffman. Okay. more specific. You see, to, Martin, to Martin Hoffman is just everywhere, <laughs> <laughs> and he needs to be on this on this podcast. Yeah, but, he does. Um, they were looking into um the, the the digestive tract and and kind of cardiovascular issues within. Uh, dnfs in ultramarathon yes oh, running that, yeah. yeah and it's, it's up to 90 percent of dnfs complain of nausea which i think again we've spoken Huge. about the pain threshold athletes just want to push through and it's knowing whether it's your coach whether it's you being in tune with your body but what is the difference between like a little bit of nausea because i tried a morton gel for the first time on race day versus yeah like i'm so nauseous and my my heart is beating in my throat and i can't see or I'm seeing things that I shouldn't see and when yes. to when to pull. So with the organ yeah. damage thing, yeah, that's like having the wisdom to know what is uh, like an acute reaction to a stupid thing. So running up a hill that you shouldn't have or taking food you shouldn't have versus I'm approaching organ damage. It sounds severe. Yes. But yeah. 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 I think so that um, I, I read that, that portion. It's like, you know, that's a huge, Again, I can't speak from any any personal um, experience on this because I've never DNF'd an ultramarathon because I've never tried an ultramarathon. <laughs> but that 90% of people 
you know, complain of nausea and, and the two primary mechanisms that are suggested, there are esophageal motility. So that refers to how we essentially move food down our throat into our stomach. Yeah. And that is altered, that changes during ultra running. And then endotoxemia, which is where endotoxins are released through the gastrointestinal wall or barrier into the bloodstream. And we can actually measure that. We can measure whether endotoxemia um, has happened or taken place. You can measure um, uh, the presence of some of those toxins yeah. Yeah. Um, so those are the, the the mechanisms but again you've got to think about right well how do i get to a point where i've got the right nutrition strategy i know what um, is going to reduce the esophageal motility for example the suggestion that they make in in the research is to eat the things that you enjoy yes. so in order to reduce that you should eat things that you enjoy but you need to practice that um, yeah. And you also, and you might enjoy, lots of people enjoy biltong, for example. That's great. Nice South African. Uh, what's the, <laughs> what's the non-South African version of that? Um, what is that? Jerky. Jerky. Uh, or, yeah, I maybe. don't know. <laughs> dried, dried meat, um, yeah. salted dried meat, <laughs> which is really high in, in protein and I imagine fats as well. But you should be eating predominantly carbohydrate during these types of efforts. So yeah. anywhere up to 90% of your macronutrient intake should be from carbohydrates so just because you enjoy something doesn't mean it's the best thing um yeah. and and then it's still the balance of the wisdom there is to eat the things that you enjoy so that you can get them yeah. down so you can get something down so yeah. it really is uh and, and i'm seeing this now with you know that's why it's great for me to have yana because she's done this kind of thing and she works with ultra runners and it, and it really is like a bit of an art as well as a science in terms yeah. of figuring out the things that work best. Um, but certainly digestive problems um, and gastrointestinal bleeding, even after ultra marathons are quite common. Yeah. Um, and they're things that you need to, to be aware of when you go into that yeah. space. Which I think so again, so many ultra athletes chalk it down to, but this is, normal or everyone told me this is going to be hard and again it's not always we're not you know okay so we've said gastrointestinal intestinal bleeding is quite common once again your body can actually bounce back from that relatively quickly if it's not on the super yeah. severe um, end of the spectrum but it's just to be aware of like what what did i put my body through what actually happened what occurred and then what consequences am i living with now so for example mm. if you've got kind of digestive tract discomfort um and issues after your race this could be like one of the things and then again yeah. to to know to what extent did i do maybe a little bit of damage or overreach and how much time do i need to recover from this um and again that's yeah, and super personalized yeah yes and that's what i wanted to one of the last things i wanted to touch on um was just on on that recovery um element because we've talked about some of the and there's loads of and i think this article that we're referring to um primarily is physiology and pathophysiology in ultramarathon running by beat nettle and nicolaitis i forgot nicolaitis's first name in 2018 and beat nettle someone i've referred to in in the past and yeah. uh, does a lot of really really good work here um but one thing that I, I wanted to talk about was that recovery time um yeah. and it can take for for all of these biomarkers that we can measure which give us an indication of 
the fact that the body's been under like a, a extreme stress, let's say, it can take up to three weeks for those biomarkers. Some of them are, are gone within kind of hours, you know, days, and, and some can take up to three weeks to return back to uh, normal levels. And I really want to encourage that people are smart about how often they participate in ultramarathon distance races. I know you had uh, Daniel Clarkson on recently, and he, he was a really, for me, a really great advocate in just being wise about how you approach your planning for the, for the year and, and not going to um, overboard. And one of yeah. the, the markers that we see that's really elevated after ultramarathon performance and for quite a while is uh, well, is from the endocrine system. So looking at different hormones and there are a number of different stress hormones. Uh, uh, cortisol is probably the one that is the, the most commonly measured. Uh, there's catechol uh, amine, amines, prolactin, growth hormone, those kinds of things um, as well. But the one that I've kind of measured in, in the past personally has been cortisol. It's quite a, a simple measure to do. Um, and then testosterone. And we see that um, is elevated for long periods of time after uh, ultramarathon running. And that's indication that there's been skeletal and cardiac muscle damage, essentially. Um, and when cortisol is chronically high, that's when you have um, a, a potential kind of a real issue, uh, like a, you, you're talking about overtraining syndrome, uh, chronic persistent headaches, intestinal problems, constipation, bloating. Uh, you could have anxiety. You could even have depression, weight gain, things like that are all related to chronically high levels of cortisol and also suppressed testosterone. Testosterone is almost, you can think of it as like a, a pro recovery hormone. It leads to muscle yeah. protein synthesis and, you know, repair to that musculoskeletal system. Uh, um, so I do worry about some of those, what do we call them earlier? Obligatory ultra runners. Yeah that they are so wrapped up in I need to constantly be doing ultra distance um, stuff that it might be putting them in a uh, kind of a downward spiral um, in terms of, of their health. So yeah. uh, I think a appropriate rest after ultra marathon running is really important. Yeah, 100%. And um, kind of just to wrap up, Simon, I think yeah. uh, the conclusion of one of the articles I laughed so much, they said basically in the actual ultra there are no health benefits and there's a lot of damage that gets done like yes, zero health yes. benefits however it's actually within the preparation that you're seeing the benefits and um we we, yes. we want to get into that actually in another in probably our next episode which is more the psychological benefits of choosing to run and train yes. and, and do these things and yeah yes. so, so i think the, of... the you, you're right um the answer to are ultras bad for you um, is no. Um, <laughs> I said at the at the beginning, I said it depends. Um, yes. But it, the answer is no, based on the evidence that we've just um, suggested. It might sound bad, but the reality is that for most people, all of those things return to normal. 
um, yes, within a few uh, days. Within, within, a, within a few days. But one thing that we need to be careful of is that there is something called uh, selection bias that we're seeing here in the research. So this is all based off of research that's been done. And we have to draw back to the fact that in these research environments, the runners that they are sampling from are 35 to 55 years old. They are um, typically well-prepared. Uh, they've been running for a long period of time. They train more than marathon runners and half marathon runners. They run slower than uh, marathon and half marathon runners when they, when they uh, train. Um, and so because they are older, wiser, their bodies are more robust, they actually have reduced um, effects, acute effects of ultramarathon running on their body. So there's a little bit of a bias there where we say, no, it's not, not bad for you. However, if you're somebody who's not well prepared, it could be bad for you. Um, and yeah. and it, you know that's really important. And I, before we started, I said tongue in cheek, um, what's the best way to recover from an ultramarathon? The best way to recover from an ultramarathon is not to sleep well or to eat well or, you know, stretch or get your massage gun or whatever. The best way to recover from an ultramarathon run is to be optimally prepared for the run in the first place. So it's yeah. the preparation that you do leading up to the event that's going to be really important in making sure that it doesn't take too much out of you and that you're going to be okay and you're going to be ready to train and and take on your next ultramarathon. Yeah. And to do the the yeah, putting in the 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 scut work for seven years, then you can just run as many ultras as you, exactly. as you like. <laughs> well <laughs> yeah, not quite, but yes, I know I know what you're saying. And I think that we also said, you know, which part of the population will you form part of the 75% that says yes to ultra running or the 25 that says no. And I think we we did cover that what are the risk factors, which is cool. Um looking kind of into the more common ones. There are many more the research that we've looked at now is pretty extensive for anyone who wants to go and have a look but yeah i think mm -hmm. in summary the the benefits still outweigh the the risks uh yes and we didn't is... talk too much about the benefits that's maybe a separate <laughs> um, episode yeah. but um you'll have to trust us that um there are lots of good uh, positive effects of of endurance training yeah um and regardless of whether you answered yes or no to whether you would um, continue to to train or, or do compete in ultra marathons if you if you knew that they were bad for you, um, regardless of your answer, uh, you can still be smart about how you do go about your training and your preparation so that you can minimize any negative impacts that uh, your body might experience, and um, hopefully that's something that you'll take into your your next training block and start to think about setting yeah. goals for for your future races yeah and i think that's going to be good going into we're about to go into a new year can you believe it and just mm. thinking new about year, new me. yeah exactly <laughs> and it's not just the next year but it's like think about your your trail running or your your endurance sport life span you know without getting yes. too deep now but about like do you still want to be running this far in seven years time you can if you make better choices now. Simon is a great yeah. example. He's still warming up to to bowl for go. that that ultra. <laughs> we can't. I've, wait I've looked at the literature. It says something about thirty five to forty five apparently. So <laughs> I've still I've still got about 
three and a half, four years, and then I'll start yes. looking into it. I'm just saying the UTMB draw opens today. So um, if you wanted to... <laughs> I'll, tell, I'll tell Jana. <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted to go from 0 to 160, then you could, you could Simon. It's not happening. It's not happening, Emily. <laughs> See, this is this is the this is the culture. See, as soon as you leave South Africa, these uh, these locals start to, uh, to tie you into these things. Yeah, we actually all just want to visit that side of the world. Um, yeah, yeah, but um, guys, thanks for for joining us for our trail science episode. This name seems to be sticking. Um, and yeah, Great. in with the next few episodes, we're going to be talking about some. Some fun stuff, trail running and well-being, trail running and injury risk factors. Um, that's something one I'm pretty excited for. How expected pain can affect future race race decisions. That's really cool. I think Daniel touched on that in one of his episodes. Yeah. So yeah, again, we're just pulling the research stuff that we find interesting um and sharing it with all of you. So Simon, thanks for your time once again. Um thanks, Emily. Sorry to it. keep you up so late. Uh, all in the name of, <laughs> of trail science, science. <laughs> um, yeah and we'll see you guys soon for our next episode thanks for tuning in there you have it folks the question has been answered is ultra running good for you we hope that you guys form part of the, the 75% that says yes to ultra running we are such advocates of the sport and yeah really just excited about promoting trail running getting people into it but just following a, a safe pathway working with a coach bringing in the experts and just giving yourself enough time to to prep for these events and get your body used to what you're going to be asking of it i hope you guys enjoyed the episode and we'll see you back here next week for our next one